My name is Roger Keys, and that's K-E-Y-S, just like car keys. It's too simple. It's always misspelled. Um, but I'm actually a, a contractor, general contractor. I specialize in historic restoration, and I've been doing that since about 1973. So I do a lot of work uh, in the city, but I do work out here, too. So about 35 years ago, my kids were real little, and on a Sunday, my wife and I with the kids were driving around on a Sunday, and we're in Waterman, and all of a sudden she sees a sign for a garage sale. And sure enough, this was on a table at a garage sale. And I picked it up, see that this is solid wood, it's very well constructed, and the markings are very authentic. Had no idea what it was. And uh, so I paid $5 for it, okay, which was you know, pretty cheap, but uh, I kept thinking, well, this is something significant. And it turns out it really was. But it took, it took me eight years to actually identify this thing. I had this for eight years, and I would take it to events where, uh, you know, maybe plane enthusiasts were, like an experimental aircraft association would have, like, fly-ins on, on farms around here. And then about eight years later, I took it to one of those, and a guy came up, and he said, that's an interstate TDR. Where did you find that? So once I had a name, then I was able to actually start doing my research on this. Now, 35 years ago, we didn't have the Internet, obviously. So I'd write to the Naval Archives or the National Archives, and about six weeks later, I might get a really, really ghosty-looking photocopy of stuff. And I started talking to people. Like, the one that told me what it was actually worked on it out of high school, in 1944, he was out of high school, and before he went into the service, he worked at the Wiltshire plant uh, on this airplane, so he knew what it was. But he had no idea whatever, you know, he said, well, it never went anywhere. It was, it was all experimental, and it was, you know, it never went anywhere. So I just figured it was just something interesting they did during World War II in DeKalb, and Wiltshire was involved in it, which was a cool story. But as I started getting stuff back from the Naval Archives, I found out it not only was used in the South Pacific, but I actually found the uh, air group, the Navy air group was having reunions that actually operated this in the South Pacific. So all of a sudden I'm putting the story of the people that built the airplane in DeKalb together with the guys that flew it in the war in the South Pacific, and neither, neither side knew anything about it. The guys that flew it had no idea where it came from because it was top secret where it was built, all this stuff. And the people that built it had no idea that it actually went into the war. Interstate aircraft uh, was well known for uh, great engineering, and tooling, and production methods to build things quickly. And, but the, uh, the Navy, uh, Naval Aircraft Factory in the East Coast and all of their people were designing this. They needed it refined for manufacturing uh, ex expedience so that they could build it quickly. They wanted to do a lot of this kind of stuff in the middle of the country because they didn't know if the Germans were going to attack New York or if the Japanese were going to come over on the Pacific side. So they figured it's a big country, do stuff in the middle. But it's all made of wood because this is, it was experimental, it was top secret, but being experimental, they couldn't utilize war essential materials like aluminum is a big one. So most of the plane is wood with a metal frame, tube frame that held the engines in the body of the plane and all the wings and everything and coatings is all wood, even around the window, around the engines was all wood. Um, 
And what's kind of cool about that, they needed a, a steel tube airframe, and Rosler didn't do steel. They did wood. They made pianos and things, and they were very good at fabricating odd shapes and stuff. Um, they literally uh, had Schwinn Bicycle in Chicago build the airframe for this. Right at Peace Road and uh, Pleasant Street there was the old General Electric factory. A lot of you may remember that. It's empty now. Um, so Interstate Aircraft took over that building to assemble the parts that Wurlitzer made. They were right next door to where Interstate had set up the, or the uh, assembly area. And then Wurlitzer made, and they totally ceased making musical instruments in uh, like 1940, almost just before 1943. And within six months, they were producing a 50-foot wingspan twin-engine aircraft. You can see the south end of the building has a big aircraft hangar door on it still today. They build the plane inside this huge you know, assembly area, and the Navy built an airport to test the plane out, and that, is, that became the DeKalb Airport. So everything came together in DeKalb. Wurlitzer made all the parts in their factory, the wooden parts. Uh, the shipment from Schwinn came over by rail from Chicago, and then everything was assembled uh, just to the east of the Wurlitzer plant, where there was an old, uh, it was actually a newer building in 1940, it was built as a Arlington Furniture. So they would actually make, build the plane in there, get it totally operational, and then you roll it out the aircraft hangar door at the south end of the plant, out on the Navy's field. Then the Navy would come and fly them around and then uh, make sure they were acceptable. And once they were accepted, they would land them. And then Wurlitzer and Interstate immediately took them apart and put them in crates. So there could have been eight or nine crates. I mean, they're big wings and all these parts. And they were shipped by rail to San Diego. And from San Diego, they went on, on Navy ships, uh, small aircraft carriers and uh, freighter ships that the Navy operated over to the South Pacific. And then when it went overseas, the Navy personnel had their own base. It was called on Bonica Island in the South Pacific. And they would uncrate everything. And the guys, I went to reunions with the guys that operated in the South Pacific, and they said that six guys could put the thing together in less than four hours. So they started working with Naval Aircraft Factory, developing all these ideas for remotely controlled aircraft. Once they had a truck on the ground at Benique Island that could actually control the takeoff, and then a TBM Avenger would be overhead, and it would assume control when it was in flight, and a guy in the basement of a TBM Avenger would be controlling the radio control gear. They had developed um, radio control systems in the early 30s. They worked with uh, RCA, who had just developed the television system in 1934 at the World's Fair, 33. So they used a rotary telephone dial. And with the rotary telephone dials, a series of digits, you can get an awful lot of combinations. And that's how they did the radio control to make it bank right or left or descend, that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the uh, television transmitter in the nose of the plane would actually send an image to the TBM Avenger, and the guy would be sitting there with a small screen and watching where the nose, of, you know, the, wherever the camera was pointed, they would actually fly it to it. You know, if they saw an island, they could head for that island, look for a target. You may notice that this, this plane has a canopy on it, and everybody said, well, it's remotely controlled. Why is there a canopy on it? Well, they reasoned that uh, if it's, if it's in, in the middle of the Pacific and they needed to hit a target 400 miles away uh, to, to uh, 
guide this thing with a television system and radio control over 400 miles, they could anything, radio interference, you know, it probably wouldn't make it. So he would fly it to a, a marine base near Bougainville from Benica, and the pilot would get out and they would put the bomb underneath it, make sure everything was set, and then they could fly it off. So I interviewed a guy named uh, Jack Burrell, and uh, he was actually an RCA engineer back in 1936. And he developed, the he worked with the team that developed the first television system that went into the nose of this airplane. He pulled this thing out of his bag, he had an Emmy. You know, it's a real Emmy. And he put it on the table. I said, is that what I think it is? He says, yeah, it's an Emmy. In 1944, it was top secret, and the rule was you could not talk about it for 30 years. There's 1974. 1964, he took the technology that he put in that airplane nose, and he put it on a golf court, it, golf cart, and he rolled it along the sidelines of a football game, and he won an Emmy for the technical aspect of doing that. There was about, about 199 of this, this version here. This is the TDR-1, Interstate TDR-1. About, uh, about 49 of them were actually deployed against the Japanese in September and October of uh, 1944. And uh, about, I think, 29 of them actually were direct hits on their targets. Most of them, all the ones that were shipped overseas, if they weren't expended against Japanese live targets, uh, when the war ended, they, they were just taken out on barges and dumped in the ocean, okay? Um, and there's, there's one, sur well, there's actually one and a half surviving TDR, interstate TDRs. One's down in Pensacola, Florida. It's a Naval Air Museum on there. And then here in DeKalb, we have uh, uh, some pretty good parts. We have like a fuselage, wing parts, an engine, landing gear, canopies, things like that. We have them displayed out at our airport. So, so I almost own a warbird. I have you know, a pretty good sized parts of a, a warbird, you know, and it's all on display out at the airport.